Good morning. Okay, so one of the things I, I, I try to say to our worship team before we meet every Sunday is anytime you pray up front, that, that may be the most significant thing you do all day. Uh, sometimes we, we use prayers as transitions and Christian subcultures and all these things, and, and uh, we don't ever want to do that here. So I appreciate the prayers that have been prayed from up front here today. And I, and I want to pray for us just as we enter into our teaching time. And so would you just bow your heads with me as we invite the Lord into our time? Okay, God, we, we thank you that you are alive, that you are active, that we are not speaking to the air right now, but we're speaking to the creator of all things, the one who knows our hearts intimately and deeply and truly. We thank you that you know every burden that we carried in this place, every fear, every anxiety, Lord, every, every thought of what's going to happen after church today and into this very busy week for many of us. We thank you, Lord, that all of those things are true and that you're good and your presence is here with us and you want to immerse us, to baptize us in your presence here today, God. And so I pray you do that, Lord. Uh, We invite you into this room. Open up your word to us, God, that we may see like you see. Open up your heart to us that we may feel like you feel, Lord. And I pray we would not leave the same today, Lord Jesus. We love you. We honor you. We praise your holy name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's this story in the Old Testament, and, and maybe, maybe you're familiar with it. It's, it's, it's of a, a guy named King Solomon. You guys know, know Solomon, right? Solomon was this king, and he was the son of King David, right? And King David has passed away. King David died. And after he died, he passed on to his young son Solomon the kingdom, all the rights and privileges of rule in the people of Israel. And so Solomon, when he receives this this kingship, uh, he does something incredible. He wants to go and demonstrate his devotion, his love, his affection for the God of his father David. And so he goes to this place called Gibeon. And, and Gibeon is this high place. It's this very important place of worship. And he goes there with this intention of sacrificing burnt offerings to the Lord, giving of himself and of his possessions to God to say, God, I am devoted to you just like my father was devoted to you. And if you read the, the account in 1 Kings 3, you'll see this incredible story that while Solomon was at Gibeon, he was in, in his bed one night trying to sleep, and it said God showed up to him in what seemed like a very vivid dream. And here's what God said. He said, Solomon, my boy, I, I love you. I will give you whatever you ask of me. Anything in the entire universe, ask, and it will be yours. What an incredible moment, right? I mean, what what would you ask for? What would you do if the God of the universe, the one who created every spinning planet, solar system, universe, came to you one night and said, I will give you anything that your heart desires in this whole universe. What do you want? What would you ask for? 
What would you ask for? And, and this, is the, this is your Aladdin moment, right? I mean, I mean you don't want to blow this. You don't want to mess this up. And, and I, know, I already know there's some of you out there saying, I'll ask for more wishes. You can't ask for more wishes, okay? God says, I will give you anything that you want. And so do you ask for money? I mean, I mean, wealth and gold and treasure, your ability to buy whatever you want, kind of money is power, right? Is that what you would ask for? Or, or would you ask for prestige and, and the ability for people to know you wherever you go, for people to be in awe of you everywhere you set your feet? Is that what you would ask for? Or maybe you would ask for, for God to go back and to, to undo some tragic, terrible, horrific suffering that you've experienced in your life. And you see that these combinations of things that we may ask for, those are the things that we, we often think, oh, if I just had that, that will make me happy or alive or joyful. If I just had enough money or enough power or enough prestige or if I didn't suffer quite so much or if I didn't go through some suffering that has happened in the past, what would you ask for? Here's what Solomon asked for when the Lord came to him that night. First Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Here's what he said. You have showed your great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show his great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O oh Lord, my God. He's no longer his father's God. My God. You have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they can't be counted. And so I ask you, my God, I ask you, give me an understanding heart, a heart of wisdom so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? And so Solomon had the opportunity to ask for anything in the entire universe. Money, prestige, power, the end of suffering even. And you know what he asks for? He asks for wisdom. Wisdom. He asks for wisdom. Wisdom is the greatest commodity in the economy of God. Wisdom is the greatest commodity in the economy of God. And I don't think I'm overstating that right now. Because wisdom is this thing that the return on investment pays off every single time. And so to the point where when, when Solomon asked for this, it, it tells us that the Lord was pleased that he asked for wisdom. And so he gave him all those other things anyway. He gave him wealth and power and prestige and all that stuff because he asked for wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, later on in Solomon's life, he says this, Blessed are those who find wisdom, who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare to her, to wisdom. It's a pretty good return on investment. Nothing else you desire compares to to wisdom. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the, what the Lord's will is. The greatest commodity in the economy of God is wisdom. Wisdom is the thing that allows you to know right from wrong, to see the world like God sees it, to, to be able to understand his will for your life. That sounds pretty good, right? If I could just understand God's will for my life, that would alleviate, alleviate a lot of stress and pressure and anxiety, a lot of making bad decisions at different points in my life. If you could understand God's will, you've got it. That's Wisdom, And so this morning, we are talking about wisdom. And specifically in our text from James 3, we're talking about the comparison, the juxtaposition between two kinds of wisdom. There's not just one kind of wisdom. There are, are really two kinds as we evaluate our text today. There is earthly wisdom and there's heavenly wisdom. There is wisdom that is from above and wisdom that comes down from Below and, and, and the question I want you to ask yourself this morning, the thing that I, re- I want to stew in you, and, and, and I want you to consider as we talk about these two different kinds of wisdom, is this. What kind of wisdom are you exercising in your life? What kind of wisdom are you flexing the muscles of and working out in the decisions you make? Where are you going? What are the sources of wisdom in your life? Because there is a right way and a wrong way to live. Despite what, what a lot of people may say now, there are people who do dumb things. And you don't want to be those people, right? Right? Did he just judge people? Yes, I judged people. Don't do stupid stuff. There is a category for people who live in such a way that their life will not flourish and thrive and grow to the extent that God wants us to. He created the universe to function in a certain way, and we walk when we walk according to his wisdom, we thrive and grow, and, we, and there's joy and gladness and hope and all kinds of things. But when we go our own way, the way of earthly wisdom, there is brokenness and hurt and death and suffering. All of those things happen. And so there is a choice set before you today. And so as we talk about wisdom, ask yourself the question, what kind of wisdom am I exercising in my marriage, in my parenting, in my uh, relationships with coworkers? What kind of wisdom am I walking with in my life. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to James chapter 3. I want to show you that I'm not making all this stuff up. It actually comes from this book that we believe. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And as you're turning there, you'll remember that this series on James that we're doing, there's this theme that we've been interacting with, this, this thing that we keep coming back to as we interact with, with James and what he's teaching us. And that theme is this, what does wholehearted devotion to Jesus look like? And and I added emphasis on that last part because James is very concerned with the external behavior of your life. What kind of actions are proceeding forth from the faith that you claim to have in your life? What does wholehearted devotion to Jesus look like? Faith is not this vague, nebulous thing. It's something that you claim to believe, but it works itself out in your actions. And as we continue in James 3, you'll remember that last week, Nick, he just gave a great talk on the tongue. 
What a great talk on your words, the power of your words. Your, your tongue has the ability to both bring life and death. Because God used words to create the heavens and the earth, our words matter. You can, you can bring poison and kill people, or you can bring life and speak life to people. Words create culture, is something Nick shared. Words impact people because words shape the actions of human beings. And so it makes sense as we continue on in James 3, as we're interacting with this idea of words, that James starts talking about wisdom because there seems to be this biblical correlation between people who are wise, who use wise words, right? And people who are foolish sometimes use foolish words, loose lips sink ships, right? And so, so he, he goes on to warn a crew of people that he's writing to. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly than others. And then he gets into this whole idea about the power of the tongue. And now we get to wisdom, wisdom and how you live your life. Look with me at James three thirteen. Here's our text for this morning. Here's what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it. Show it. This is the theme of James. Show me what you believe. By the good life. Show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. And so as James starts this section here in James 3, he's talking about wisdom. That this that he asks a question here at the very beginning. And the question is this: where are the wise people? Who are the wise people among if you're wise in the room, raise your hand this morning. No, you don't have to do that, really. Okay, right. Where are the wise people at? And what he's doing is he's using a rhetorical question. He's using a rhetorical device to make a point. And what he's saying is there might be a category of a certain type of person who claims to be wise. I don't know any of those people, right? Who claims to be wise, who claims to have the corner on the market of understanding, who who claims, hey, bless their hearts, all those people out there who haven't quite arrived yet. Uh, people who, who think that they've arrived at some level of understanding. And what James is saying is that don't just tell me that you're wise. Don't just claim wisdom. Show me. Show me your wisdom. Don't just claim wisdom. Show your wisdom. Show it by your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And, and this is James' theme leaking out of him again. It's not just what you say. It's not just the t-shirts you wear. It's not growing up in the South. It's not growing up in a Christian family that makes you a Christ follower. It is what you do. It is your faith leading to actions. Your wisdom leads to certain actions in your life. We can objectively evaluate each other. And sometimes it's a good practice to do that. What kind of faith do you have? Is it real faith that has feet? And 
I, I kind of see this illustration if we look at Psalm 1, that famous passage in Psalm 1 that says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates, churns over it day and night. He's like a tree planted near streams of living water who bears fruit in season and out of season. And what the psalmist is saying here is that you can tell who the, the blessed person is or the, the happy person. You can translate that word happy or wise person. You can tell who that person is by where they walk, where they stand, and who they spend time with in their lives. Conversely, you can tell this, the person who is, is not walking according to godly wisdom by where they stand, where they walk, and who they spend time with in their lives. There is objective evidence in your life by what you do, who you spend time with. And so that's what James is saying here. He's basically saying how you live matters. How you live your life matters. Don't just claim something. Actually live something out. And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, as we talked about this theme, James is speaking against this heresy that, was, that existed in the first century. It still exists today called antinomianism. Do you guys remember what this is? It's this heresy that says, God's grace is so big, and he's so loving and kind and merciful that it just doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter how you live. God loves you. God is for you. You are worthy. God just wants you to be happy. You ever heard some of those things? You ever heard some of that stuff? And the dangerous thing about this is that the worst lies are always the ones that are sprinkled with just a little bit of truth. Of course God loves us. Of course we are worthy to some degree of his love because we're his children made in his image. But if you use that logic to say it doesn't matter how you live your life, you have moved outside of historical biblical Christianity and into something else. You've taken Jesus and made him into this hippie, bear-hugging guy who doesn't care how how you live your life. Yeah, I I just love you. It doesn't matter, right? There's no standard of holiness for your life. There's no taking up your cross to follow him. There's this, you have entered into what what they call moralistic therapeutic deism, which is I'm going to serve a God who might have some rules, but not rules that really make me uncomfortable. And and I'm going to follow him because it makes me feel good to know that there's a cosmic safety net in the sky somewhere. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism. Whenever you try to worship a God like that, he bends to you. You don't bend to him. He conforms himself to your life. You don't conform yourself to his. That's not Christianity. You guys ever read the Babylon Bee? You guys that Christian satire website? I love this website. Things are funny typically because they're true, right? And I read this, this title the other day as I was looking through. Here, here's what the title said when I was looking through, every local, everything local man feels led to do, he coincidentally really likes. Let me read the first paragraph. Here's what it says. Don Farmer, 43, reported Tuesday that he was recently led by God towards several things he really likes. And in fact, as a general rule, everything he feels spiritually moved to do, he coincidentally enjoys very much, right? 
Right? We, don't, we don't ever do that at all, right? Like God would never ask me to step outside of my, my comfort zone or, or to die to my, oh, wait, yeah, he said that. To pick up your cross and to follow him. Christianity without discipleship is death. Christianity without cost is death. It's something else altogether. And so what, he, what he's saying here is how you live matters. How you live matters. There is a way of wisdom in the world, and we ought to follow it. We ought to step into it. There's this terrifying scripture in 1 Corinthians that I think we need to talk about. 1 Corinthians three twelve. here's what it says. If, if anyone builds on this foundation, he's talking about Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their, their work will be shown for what it is. Because on the day, capital D, the, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of vengeance of our God, it will bring it to light. Everything will be revealed in the fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And so there's this idea that how you live matters. And one day, you will stand before a holy God and give an account for how you lived your life. One day, I will stand before a holy God, and Sean and Nick and anybody else we have teach will stand, and we will be judged more harshly because we teach the people of God. And we take that responsibility very seriously. How you live matters. There is a way of wisdom Walk in it. Walk in it. What does that look like? What is wisdom? The, the, the word wisdom is this Greek word sophia, which is where we get the word sophisticated. Kind of like that, right? Sophisticated. The other word used in verse 13 is this word understanding, which means expertise or, or know-how. And there's this huge difference between sophia, wisdom, and understanding. Understanding is this technical understanding, technical knowledge of something. I can technically understand how something works, but have no wisdom to actually apply my knowledge to the use of something, right? So, so you can know how to play the guitar, and you can know how to ride a bike, or you can know how to play football, but have no wisdom to actually put all the pieces together in a way that actually makes it work the right way, the way that it's supposed to And so wisdom is the ability to put knowledge into practice. But I think it's more than that. I love this definition of wisdom that I found. I've never heard it before. This was eye-opening for me. Pastor Tim Keller out of New York, he says this about wisdom. I think this is beautiful. Wisdom is the ability to see and build relationships of all sorts. Wisdom is the ability to take things that are unrelated and see and fit them into a relationship. Wisdom is the ability to take disparate things and put them into a whole. What's what's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying that you can pick up a guitar and you can have a pick and you can strum the strings on the guitar, have the technical knowledge to know how to do that. And you you can even know the four chords that we play in every Christian word, C, G, D, E, minor. You can know that technically all of those things, even a little bit about rhythm and tempo, but that, that is in no way wisdom. Wisdom, on the other hand, is this thing that sees all the parts working together, the relationship between them, and puts them together to make this thing called music. Isn't that cool? Music. 
Wisdom takes knowledge and puts it all together. You see the relationship between the disparate parts. Or if, if you're a sports person, take football, for instance. So, so you can know technically about different offensive plays and how to read different defenses and, and where you're at on the position on the field and different audibles that you call on these things. But it takes wisdom to be able to see all the pieces and parts as they work together. If you ever saw Peyton Manning when he was in his heyday at the line of scrimmage, calling audibles, making different plays, he saw things. Have you ever heard a professional athlete who just says, it's like the game slows down for me, right? That's wisdom. That's wisdom. It's like that scene in, in The Matrix. You guys remember The Matrix? That scene in The Matrix where he finally just sees how everything is put together, how it all relates to each other, and then he can interact with it and change it in different ways. Or, or if, you, if you need a more modern illustration, this is a movie that's playing in the background in our car. I have it memorized right now in my life. The Lego movie, right? right? There's, this, there's this moment where Emmett, guy, right, where, where he finally becomes a master builder, and his quote is, I see everything. I see everything. I can put it all together, right? That's wisdom, the ability to see the differing relationships between things and put them together to use them in the way that they ought to be used to, 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 to put things together that others can't put together. And what James says is that when you have that kind of wisdom, it, 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 it spurs from humility that leads to a good life. And there are two words typically used for good when we're reading the New Testament. Uh, the first word is this word agathos, which means morally correct or upright good as opposed to evil. And, and the other word is this word kalos, which means good or, or beautiful or lovely as opposed to ugly. Guess which word James is using here to describe wisdom? It's not agathos. What he's saying is when you have someone who can take all the parts and put it together and play the song, it's beautiful. You can see it. You can sense it. When you see the person calling the plays at the line, when you see that play from someone who just puts it all together, it's beautiful. You can see it. You can sense it. When someone, a godly person, is living a godly life in wisdom, they are taking relationships and bringing them together. They're resolving conflicts like people are unable to resolve. They, they take things that are disjointed and they bring them together in a way that makes sense. And so wisdom is seeing the world like God sees it. It's a perspective thing. Do you want to ask God for wisdom if he comes to you tonight? Yes. Because if you can see things like God sees it, and you have divine perspective to put things together, right? Okay, let's do this. Let's compare and contrast godly wisdom with earthly wisdom. Wisdom from above with wisdom from below. And first, I want to look at their source. I want to look at the origin. What, what's, what's the difference between the origins of these two kinds of wisdoms? James three fourteen. here's what it says. But if you... Harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What's he saying? He's saying the origin of worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And if you know anything about 
the spiritual war that we relate to every day as, as human beings on this planet. There are three primary enemies, three primary forces of opposition to us. You guys know what they are? The world, the flesh, and the devil. You can read that in Ephesians 2, 1, 1 through 3. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world is the, the system of, of, of government and, and systems that have been put together by sinful people that oppose the values of God. The flesh is your internal bent or inclination towards sin. The devil is this spiritual being who is opposed to the values of God who will one day be thrown into the lake of fire along with anybody who follows him. And so there's this idea that earthly wisdom is, is earthly, temporal, only concerned about the here and now, unspiritual, it's sensual, it only cares about fleeting passions and feelings. You're bent towards sin, and it's demonic, led by the devil. And there's this great parable that Jesus gives that I think illustrates earthly wisdom. It's in, it's in Luke chapter 12. It's the parable of the rich Fool, you'll, you'll remember this. Here's, here's what Jesus said. The, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what should I do? I, I have no place to, to store all of my stuff. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. That's amazing. What a great idea. And I'll store my surplus, surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy your life. Retire. Go do whatever you want to do. Your life is about you and what you can accumulate and build. And then the Lord came to him and said, you fool. Which is the opposite of a wise person, right? You fool, because this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then what are you going to do with all your stuff? Storing up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Earthly wisdom is only concerned about the here and now. It has no thought to what Peter refers to as that seed that is kept for you in heaven that imperishable seed waiting on those who believe in Christ. No thoughts of eternity, right? And then there's that, that unspiritual part, the sensual uh, flesh nature that we have. And, and I saw a great illustration of, of that kind of wisdom in, in the media this past weekend, actually. On, on Friday, um, Anthony Weiner, the former congressman from New York, was he, he pled guilty to sending obscene images to through text of himself to an underage girl. And uh, he, he, I'm, sh- I'm sure in, in the moment there was some thought like, you know what, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. This is what feels right, and so I'm going to do it. And he gave in to this sensual passion desire that was thrusting him towards something that was just atrocious. And I, and I love what he shared as he pled guilty. The New York Daily News had this quote from him where he said, I have a sickness, but I don't have any excuses. And even though I'm not sure he knows what he was saying, what he was saying was, I have a flesh nature. I have an internal bent, an inclination in myself towards things that will destroy me. I have a sickness. We have a sickness, by the way, called sin. And Jesus came to set us free from that kind of wisdom. Because, by the way, it catches up to you. 
it will always catch up to you when one way or the other. And then demonic, obviously following the lead of the devil who went to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, hey, if you just eat this fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Just, just, just do what I say. Don't do what he says, right? And so the origin of worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What is the origin of the converse? What is the origin of godly wisdom? James 3.17 tells us that the wisdom of God comes down from heaven. And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, and if I've prayed for you, I've probably prayed this verse for you because this is my saving grace in my life because I often feel so weak and inadequate and unable to do all kinds of things that I say, God, you're gonna have to do this. <laughs> and, and someone shared this verse with me. Actually, he was a Messianic Jewish teacher at a Bible college in Colorado, shared this verse with me about 15 years ago because I asked him the question, hey, where does wisdom come from? I, I, wanna, be, I wanna have wisdom. And he said, Josh, go to Proverbs chapter two, verse six. And it said this, it said, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes understanding. Wisdom, yes, is applied experience over time in your life that no one is discouraging that, but wisdom also pours forth from the mouth of a person. It comes in relationship with a person. It comes in proximity with a person. That's why who you spend your time with matters, right? Because if you spend your time with the wrong people, you will be living a certain kind of way. But if you spend your time with the one who wisdom pours forth from, you too will be wise. And so wisdom from heaven comes down from the mouth of God. That's why James tells us in verse five of chapter one, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And so earthly wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Godly wisdom comes down from him, knowing him, being in relationship with him. Okay, that's the origin. Next, let's look at the, let's look at the operation, the, the, the outworking of these kinds of wisdom. James three fourteen again says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth, because such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. What's he saying? Wisdom from the world has two primary things that drive it. Envy and selfish ambition. Envy is this word zealous, which is where we get the word jealous or zealous even. You can be jealous and zealous for yourself is the context here. To have envy in your life means you want to do whatever you can do to get what you want to get because you deserve it. Your life is about you and no one else. That's envy. Selfish ambition is this other word, eretheia, which, which is probably better translated strife, striving. Uh, another meaning is, is a partisan spirit. 
And you should get the picture of a politician going around canvassing people, trying to get them to buy into their particular thought processes or ideologies, who they are, what they believe, come and be a part of my faction. And when people do this, it creates division in the church. And we see this all too often. We start new churches because people argue over the color of carpet. I have a giant bear staring at me right now. We're not really concerned about that stuff, right? We're in an elementary school. And so you have people who, who divide over all of these things because you have people canvassing and zealous for their own personal preferences in their churches and in their faith communities. And what James is saying is that's worldly wisdom. That will divide and destroy. Actually, we'll see that in the first part of chapter 4 when Sean teaches on it next week. Worldly wisdom creates strife and conflict in all kinds of ways. Conversely, where, what, is, what is the operating factor of godly wisdom? Well, he says it right there in James 3.13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility. Humility, that word is meekness that comes from wisdom. And that, that, that word humility comes, comes with this idea of, of, of bridled power. Humility or meekness is not weakness. It, it is taking your, your power and submitting it and serving it to something greater than you. And, and this word is used in extra-biblical documents to describe a horse that has been broken and trained by a horse trainer, Right? And so what, what, what's he saying here is, is that to have humility means you have allowed yourself to be broken, to be humbled, to be submissive to the great horse whisperer that is the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you and guide you in your life. And so humility is this first and foremost indicating factor of, of uh, wisdom. And, and you probably know some, some people who have started getting on in years, and a common thing you hear from someone who is growing in wisdom, they, they say that thing that, that's pretty common. They say, I, I didn't realize how little I know. That is a moment of humility, right? Or even Solomon, when he was asking earlier on in the service here, when he says, I'm just like a little child. I am weak. I have nothing. Please, God, I need your wisdom. You cannot have wisdom. There has never been a moment of wisdom that has happened in the history of the world without someone humbling themselves to seek it, humbling themselves to train in it, humbling themselves to consume wisdom. Humility is this predicating factor, right? I love this, this quote from Socrates. I'll just throw it in here. True wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us. And I would say that I wouldn't leave it there as this nebulous thing. It's not about just realizing how little you know. It's about how re- realizing how vast the knowledge of God is and how we can connect to him as the giver of that wisdom. And so wisdom is, first of all, humble. And then James 3.17 says, there are several other things that wisdom is. It's pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And I do not have time to give each of these a fair treatment. But let me just read through them and really briefly make some comments. Number one, pure. Wisdom is pure. 
And I think what this means is the holiness of God is something that we should take very seriously. God is pure and he is holy and we think we understand what that means, but we have no idea. There is a reason why every person in the Bible, even when they just encounter angels, they fall on their face in reverent awe and fear. It's because the holiness of God demands worship and affection. And so, first of all, wisdom is pure. It aligns itself with the plan and standards of God. Next, wisdom is peace-loving. And and, and an interesting thing to note here is that it's peace-loving after it's pure. You you never sacrifice purity for the sake of peace. You, You die on the right hills, right? And so it loves peace. And I love that scripture from Romans. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. It's considerate. It's considerate. The word can also be translated gentleness. One commentator said it, it was described as sweet reasonableness. We should be reasonable in our faith, in how we interact with each other, which means delete all of your social media accounts. Number four, it is submissive, which is a really popular word in our culture, right? Submissive. And you should get this sense of a willingness to yield when you hear that word, yielding to one another, not yielding about the purity and standards and the truth of God. Those things are up here, right? But yielding on things that don't matter, the color of carpet. Are you serious? Sometimes I wonder when we look out at churches and we look out at faith communities that have such division and derision over such petty things, And what he's saying is we should be submissive, willing to yield to one another, to consider one another. You should get a picture of a car driving down I-49 and a a car merging onto the highway. And there has to be this moment of yielding as they intersect with each other. Otherwise, it's going to be a crash. So you yield to each other. Wisdom is full of mercy. It's full of good fruit. It's impartial. And then lastly, it's sincere, which... This is the antonym of the word hypocrite. Hypocrite is this word that means, um, boy, you're a play actor. You're two-faced. You are double-minded. You have a divided heart. To be sincere means you are wholehearted. You can see why we have our theme here, right? Wholehearted in your devotion to this Jesus. And so let me just ask you this. Take a second. I'm going to leave it up there. Ten seconds. Out of these things on this list that describe godly wisdom and add humility to that, what is one area that you really need God to just help you in? What's one area that you're struggling in? Are are you peace-loving? Are you a considerate person, gentle in the way you relate to people? Are you submissive? Does something rise up inside of you at the suggestion of being submissive? Probably you're struggling with that, right? What is it? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you godly wisdom. Okay, so we've talked about the origin of godly wisdom. We've talked about the the outworking of these things, the operation of it. Let's look at this last thing coming in for a landing, the outcome, the fruit of godly wisdom. James 3.16, for where you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. What's he saying? He's saying that the fruit of a 
a selfish, envious, worldly-minded person is, is lack of clarity, lack of order, milkiness, fogginess, confusion in your life. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you were submitting to some ungodly thoughts or ungodly wisdom, and it just created chaos? God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. Have you ever experienced that? About, oh, I don't know what it was. It was probably six or seven months ago. Uh, you know, we're fairly new here. Katie and I have been here for about a year. And, and when, you, when you're new to a place, you're figuring things out. And there, there's this propensity inside of us whenever, we, we, whenever we're in places where we're leading and things. All of us, we all do this, and I'm the worst is that we try to self-protect and guard ourselves. And, and last fall, we started this process where we're trying to recruit new elders and establish this new church here in Bentonville. And, 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 and I remember during that season, I had a, I had a moment where I, I submitted to worldly wisdom, even in my relations to Sean and Nick and some of these guys that I didn't know real well at the time. And you guys know when you don't know someone real well, you start kind of doing this, I don't know, the standoff thing, and you're trying to figure each other out. And I remember during that season, I just had all these thoughts that were all just self-protection thoughts, like, I, I, I just need to, we need to write everything down, and, and, uh, and here's what I do. I'm going to write a position paper on the biblical stance of what an elder is and what all these things are. And I just went into this mode in my life where, where I was just confused and cloudy and broken because there was this thing inside of me that was trying to protect me. Me. You ever do that? And what I come, what you come to find out that these guys are some of the people I love the most, some of my best friends. I'm, I'm a better man being around them, working with them. But it's amazing what this internal inclination towards self will do to you if you're not careful. It creates disorder and every evil practice. You know what he means by that? C.S. Lewis calls it the complete anti-God state of mind. He's talking about pride. Our own pride wants to defend ourselves and protect ourselves and advance ourselves. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. It is the indicator of worldly wisdom. Conversely, humility submitting yourself first to God and then to others around you becomes this godly wisdom that you have in your life. I don't need to protect myself because I see things how God sees them now. I can put all the pieces together, all the relationships together, and I can understand that even though certain things may happen at different points, life's not perfect, we live in a broken world, God is working something in me and in us to do something beautiful. I can see. And so the fruit of godly wisdom is not this, this inner turmoil and disorder. It's peace. It's peace. You can see how everything works together. And so you're not the person who says, God, will you take away all this suffering that I've had in my past and all these things that I can't explain? You're the person who says, I see now, God, that you are making me into a particular kind of person. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you see that. That's wisdom. That's what God wants you to embrace and to ask for. If he comes to you tonight, ask him for that. Don't ask him for anything else. It is the primary commodity in the economy of God. And so here's my question. 
What kind of wisdom are you exercising in your life? Is it worldly wisdom, which leads to confusion and disorder and every evil practice? Or is it godly wisdom, which leads to peace and a harvest of righteousness, is what he says in James 3.18. What is it? Because Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but in humility, he gave that up and he took on the form of a man. John 1 says it like this, the logos, the wisdom of God, became flesh. That's what he wants to do in you. He wants the wisdom of God to become flesh in your life. You can only do that through Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Oh, God, which is alive and active. It messes with us. It shakes us. It, it challenges us. It, it, uh, it takes us to new places, Lord. Thank you that you, you hijack our plans and that you, you, you allow us to see things, Lord, that we could not see before. That's wisdom. And maybe you've done that in someone in this room this morning. Maybe they can see something that they didn't see. They see the relationship of their life, that they have been walking with the wrong people and standing with the wrong people and sitting with the wrong people. And now they want to give their life to something greater, something that will bring true life and true joy and true hope. Lord, help them to choose you, the very wisdom of God. We ask that in Christ's name.